This episode of the Elevate Your Leadership podcast is brought to you in part by iFly Virginia Beach Indoor Skydiving. At iFly Virginia Beach, we bring people together through the dream of flight. To learn more about our leadership development and team building, visit iFlyVirginiaBeach.com. Welcome to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast series with U.S. Navy Special Operations veteran, CEO, and hockey fanatic, Bob Pizzini. Bob discusses leadership, success, failure, defining moments, and hard lessons learned with guests who are intentional in their approach to leadership. Leadership is a perishable skill. Use it or lose it. In this series, entrepreneurs, industry executives, academics, public figures, and other highly effective professionals share their formulas for success with you. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this episode of Elevate Your Leadership with me, your host, Bob Pizzini. I have the honor and privilege of being associated with many retired Navy Special Operations personnel, Navy SEALs, Navy divers, and Myself, I'm a retired Navy EOD technician, and within that community, both active duty and the retired community, there are many people who transition to great success, and today's guest is no exception. I have Marty Strong on the Elevate Your Leadership podcast as my guest today, and Marty has experienced tremendous success both during his military career and after. He's authored several books, one of which I just finished reading titled Be Nimble, and it's an incredible book on leadership and Marty's journey and Marty's discovery and Marty's learning. Marty Strong has been a leader for decades, first in uniform as a combat decorated Navy SEAL and then in commercial business. After leaving military service, Marty spent seven years as a successful investment advisor focused on high net worth clients ending that phase of his career at the United Bank of Switzerland. He transitioned into business management as a senior vice president for a billion-dollar-a-year defense contracting company. In 2009, he joined a small, early-stage growth company in the same industry as an equity partner. Since then, Marty has led first one, then two employee-owned healthcare startups as CEO, chief strategy officer, and board director. He is the author of Be Nimble, How the Navy SEAL Mindset Wins in the Battlefield and in Business, and is currently working on his next book, Be Visionary. I see a trend there. looks pretty cool. Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimism. Marty, thank you so much for being on the Elevate Your Leadership podcast today, and welcome. Thanks for inviting me. A lot going on in your bio, and a lot has gone on in your career. Of all the amazing things that you've done, how is it that you decided to get into becoming an author, both nonfiction and fiction? I always liked to write. I liked writing when I was a kid. I did well in high school with you know the creative writing assignments that most people don't like. I love to read, and somewhere in the back of my mind, I thought it'd be great if someday I could produce the kinds of books that I enjoyed. When I was growing up with science fiction and adventure books and kind of military heroic novels. Interestingly, I didn't really do much writing until about five or six years ago when I read uh, Tim Ferriss's book, The 4-Hour Workweek. In there, he kind of breaks down a couple of things. One of, one of the things he did is inventory your lifetime, the use of the, of the precious minutes that you have in your life, and see what you're wasting, add them all up, and then what do you want to do with those extra hours that you were wasting? In my case, I was wasting it watching TV reading magazines, uh, articles, et cetera, about 
all kinds of subjects that had nothing to do with my work, my family, or, or things I really enjoyed. I was just kind of a news junkie. The second part that I pulled from his book was to live your bucket list, to create the bucket list of, of all those things you want to do someday. But instead of waiting for someday, go ahead and calculate, analyze how much they'll cost to do now while you still have a job, while you're still healthy enough to enjoy all these things, go ahead and execute now, you know, knock one off at a time. Don't wait until you're too old, unhealthy, or too worried about spending cash on, on these extravagant trips and experiences. So the, the problem with me was when I wrote it down, I've been to over 45 countries. I've done a lot of things like you, you know, you know, skydiving and mountain climbing. And you, you start the list of what most people put on these, on their bucket list. And the you know, Uncle Sam paid me to do most of that. I end up with actually skills. I wanted to be able to play guitar well. I wanted to be able to speak Spanish well, finally, after going through multiple attempts. And I wanted to write a novel. The easiest one for me to do within my own kind of control without requiring an outside instructor was to write a novel. And because I had freed up the time in the inventory exercise that Tim Ferriss came up with, I knew I had about two to two and a half hours a day I was wasting. And so I converted the first two hours every morning, five o'clock to seven o'clock into a writing block of an hour and then a workout uh, block of an hour and just started the discipline of putting the words on paper. Three, 500 words was fine. I think the most I'd ever put down maybe eight or 900. Didn't try to push it, but I made it a seven day a week discipline. And eventually within about a hundred days, I'd finished the first draft of my first novel. Novel number eight was, was released two weeks ago. It's a good process. It works for me. It's cathartic. And that's how I ended up writing the, the fiction books. The business book was more of a, as you said in the intro, me trying to get my philosophies and thoughts about business and leadership down on paper. Yeah. So that's an interesting transition, man. There's just so much in what you just said. So news junkie and Tim Ferriss, the drill in Tim Ferriss's book, capture all this time that you're wasting. And I am guilty as charged of the news junkie and doing a lot of things that don't provide this real payback or this real reward. So you wrote novels to begin with. And then how many novels had you written before you wrote a business book? Eight. Eight novels. And then was that business book always in the back of your mind? Or how did you how did you go from writing novels to writing business books? Because most authors don't cross multiple lines like that. Sure. So I'm in business. I've been in business for 25 years. I've led businesses, different kinds of businesses, different industries. From a leadership perspective, you know, you just kind of accumulate best practices, whether they're observed, somebody taught you, somebody mentored you, maybe you even created a few from scratch yourself. You see where they apply and sometimes they apply universally across all types of, of companies. I, I ended up at a point where I was helping a lot of other business owners and leaders. When they asked me, I just sure I'll, you know, I'll give you some advice or I'll listen to you and see if I can help. And then it got to the point where I thought, well, what if I wrote all this down and kind of codified what I thought about some of the aspects of leadership and my thoughts, my observations, and the sum total of my 25 years in business and 20 years leading SEALs in the Navy, that was kind of the point of the exercise. That thought was easy. It took about as long as it just took for me to say it. The next step was really hard because I asked the question, why would anybody read a book about what I think? <laughs> Who cares? That was a longer journey of trying to get past that self-doubt and kind of that introspective process of why me? Who cares? What do I have to offer? And on the other, other side of that reading experience, should this book be written for? And that kind of took me down the path. And eventually by answering all those questions, I was able to feel comfortable with the process, kind of the goals of the book and start writing. So getting into the book, great questions. Who is this book written for? Why would anybody be interested in what I have to say? I can tell you, having read the book, I felt like it was almost a personal mentorship session. It was almost as if you were there speaking to me in a language that was easy for me to understand. 
Now, I own a business. I have 35 people on my team, and we've been around for a while. So you and I have similar backgrounds in our military career, special operations, and then transition to the private sector, although your private sector experience blows me out of the water. I just really thought that the lessons, a lot of the lessons you shared were original thought content. And I am a thought leader, and I spend a lot of time paying attention to what thought leaders do and what message they convey and how do they bring credibility to themselves and others. And your book does that with ease, with simplicity, yet there is complexity. I mean, I just thought it was great. I want to hit the first thing in your book that really caught my attention, and that was your concept of volume, velocity, and complexity. Can you discuss those three things? Sure. I probably, I think I've talked to you about this before, I pull this kind of three-part combination of influences on the effectiveness, the efficiency uh, of the performance of any individual, any individual task, technical skill set. I don't care if it's an air traffic controller or if it's a farmer or it's an Uber driver, you know, you look at it and you say, all right, that Uber driver's got a great personality, gets along with everybody, as long as he only does X number of rides per every number of minutes. Once he starts to increase the volume, then he starts to get a little edgy, a little cranky, a little tired, and maybe the velocity of constantly dropping to pick somebody up like instantly, no break. So now he's hungry, he's thirsty. So you start looking at almost any position, the complexity of the task understood, if altered, can throw that working professional, that technical professional kind of off balance. If they're fine with the, the complexity, even some increase in the complexity of a task, but you have to do a lot more of those tasks, the volume can have that same unbalancing effect. The third thing is how fast is, is the work being thrown at them? How fast is it coming across their desk? Sometimes people can think through problems, complex problems, even at volume and do good work. But if they have to do that three times every 60 seconds, they start to make a mistake. By stepping back and watching people, those kind of three legs or three pillars of performance, I would see the wheels wobbling like they were going to fall off. And then I would use those three kind of angles of perspective and observation to try to figure out what it was. And from a job design standpoint, if you put them there and they were fine, let's say the company's scaled and grown and now they're falling apart, you did that to them because you didn't either add somebody else to pick up volume or you didn't add a system or software or something to help with the complexity, or you didn't look at the upstream tasking flow and make sure the managers and supervisors that are making those tasking demands on this person weren't recognizing that it was coming faster and faster and they had a limit. And I'm talking about everywhere, anyone from a CEO all the way down. It seems to be universal. It seems to work. And as I mentioned to you another time, in retrospect, thinking back in the SEAL teams, there were officers that had those same three things. They were really good at one thing. They started to fall apart when it got complex or when the decisions started coming too fast, their judgment started to falter. They need more processing time. So I, th I think it works. Yeah. And I think you're right. It applies at all levels, whether you're the commanding officer, the chief executive officer, or the newest person on the team. Ideally, that seasoned CEO is going to know himself a little bit more, himself or herself, and they'll know kind of where their limits are or when these things become overwhelming. Towards the end of your book, you talked a little bit about wellness, you know, the health and wellness factor. And in my offering, Elevate Your Leadership, and in the book that I'm writing, I spend a lot of time talking about health and wellness, understanding the uh, autonomic nervous system and sympathetic and parasympathetic. You know, I imagine those would have effect on volume, velocity, and complexity as well. Again, it's just somebody knowing themselves. 
The next thing I would like to discuss is black swan. You talk about black swan events, which are these unforeseen, very dramatic events, COVID perhaps, but you talk about how once you recognize a black swan, it's no longer a black swan. Could you just take us through what a black swan is and how the leader deals with it and how it resolves? Sure. Anybody can Google black swan or go to amazon.com and find multiple books, very specific and do a better job describing historical context and origin of that term why why these these events that nobody foresaw hit senior leaders it doesn't matter if it's industry or government sometimes it's military then why why did the leaders react the way they did the gist of it though is a black swan event is an event that was not foreseen and causes great disruption and it may be for a short amount of time maybe for a long long, long period of time and it may be that it that you're not really sure how long the disruption is going to last. So you mentioned the September 11th attacks. I don't think anybody the next morning thought we'd be at war for 15 years. I mean, nobody thought what's the effect going to be on the relations with Europe and Russia and China and everything else. Nobody had that kind of far-reaching thought, evaluation of the potential futures that that event caused. Pearl Harbor was a little bit different because we were in the midst of a world war. We just were the last person to get sucked into it. We knew what it meant. It meant we were going to be involved in this world war that had been going on for a couple of years in Europe and in China, Manchuria, with the Japanese. So sometimes the black swan is a partner to something that makes it a little bit more understandable. And sometimes like 9-11, it comes out of blue and you don't understand what just hit you. There's actually more black swans in the context of business, I believe, because you know, the, the risk reward of a nation going to war is contemplated for a long time and often set aside by nations because it's just too big of a risk. There's too many downside costs to it. Even dictators think about, you know, if I do this and four countries ally, I'm, I'm done. They're going to come in and wipe me out. So maybe I'll just stay a dictator in my own little world here. But I'll still contemplate all these things at night when I'm thinking the big thoughts, but I'm not going to actually do it. In business, though, business happens so fast, so frequently, and it's changing in a way that's not reported. Nobody saw the bomb go off here. Nobody saw a building fall. Nobody knows that it happened. It happened, you know, in another state at night, two o'clock in the morning, two guys sat down and figured out how to do something that's going to destroy your company or destroy your product. Not maliciously, but it's going to take you off the map. It's just a matter of time, but you have no clue. And you won't have a clue until the day it starts to happen. And then you have a very limited amount of time to decide, is this real? Is this information true? And then what do we do? And that's the second part of Black Swans for leaders is how do you react to it? So how do you react? When you identify the Black Swan, is it no longer a Black Swan? I mean, you're in crisis mode. Would you agree that COVID was a Black Swan? And how do leaders then react? I think COVID was not the Black Swan event. I think the world government's reaction to COVID was actually the Black Swan. We've had pandemics. We've had lots of pandemics. And if you go back to Spanish flu, lots of them, the governments didn't shut down their nations. They didn't shut down their economies. I think that is the black swan. Wow, that's interesting. That's why nobody knew what to do. Because if you just left it for a week, let's say the president came out and said, okay, we've got this COVID pandemic. And then he walked away and didn't say anything else. All the academics and, and historians and the medical professionals will all start talking about, okay, pandemic, got it. All the pandemics, how do they look? How did they, how long do they last? What did people do? It's mostly medical attention, medical care, right? Nobody would have said what they didn't do and they should have done is they should have shut down the economy, shut down small businesses, go into deep, deep debt by throwing cash at everybody, but then not let them go out and spend it because if they go out and spend it, there's, there's limitations on who they can see, who they can touch, which buildings they can go in. That to me was the black swan. I still don't think the full ramifications of that, the governmental actions in these countries, including the United States, is understood. Now, in the classic sense of a black swan, you kind of have three ways of dealing with it. First one, the more more um, 
kind of the usual one in case studies is you go into denial. A great example is Kodak inventing digital photography, <laughs> then getting their butt kicked by digital photography and sitting there the whole time with their hands over their ears and their eyes closed going, wow, 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 it's not happening. It's not happening. We're still the biggest in film until they got creamed by Fuji and everybody. And, but believe it or not, that's what most people do. It'll just go away if we wait long enough. We're not going to change the status quo. We're not going to change what we've been doing. The trajectory we're on is the trajectory we're going to be on. You know, our strategy is like a railroad track. It's heading one direction. It'll be okay. And then it's not okay. So then you get the second reaction. You go through the first reaction for a period of time where you realize it's not going to be okay. And we have to take some kind of a bold move and change what we're doing. So that's the, the second type of reaction. But they've already wasted some time because they've already gone through this denial thing and they've lost a lot of opportunity to make things happen early. The third one is much more rare. And that is kind of more to our military background, especially in the special operations community. It is what it is kind of reaction. You're in a place crash you hit the mountain you survive there's 10 people there if you have a seal or, or an eod guy while everybody the other people are all moaning and groaning about oh look what happened to us and everything they're already trying to figure out what the path is where the water is going to be are we have enough food is there a radio that works in the plane you, you've already gone into yeah plane crash done got it now we got to figure out what we're going to do next and that is probably the right way to react to a black swan it takes a lot of courage and it's bold but it's truly as i say in the book be nimble is you have to start with this open-minded humility which means whatever you think you know from the past doesn't apply get over that and start learning fast yeah you know that's uh that was exactly kind of my experience with covid so a year ago march 23rd 2020 the governor said everybody close your business i have an amusement recreation and training business and uh we closed the day we closed i didn't know how we would emerge i just knew we would and great team great teammates great leadership and it was very foggy and the path ahead was unknown but it's kind of like your airplane crash scenario let's inventory what we have and let's start figuring our way out of this that was quite the experience but the way you say the government's reaction was the black swan that's the Thought leadership in action right there. That's very intuitive. Super cool. Also in your book, you talk about training versus coaching versus mentoring. And I think it's very important that leaders understand not only that there is a difference, but what the difference is between those three very important components of the workplace. Can you dive into that a little bit? Sure. I try to make distinctions in this book in a way that aren't purely academic. I mean, I, I could throw peer review definitions, which everybody agreed to, but you know, apply in the real world. Uh, I think from my perspective, training is more valuable when it relates to skills and improvement of skills if the skills exist and knowledge delivery if knowledge is missing. So, you know, learning how to play the guitar takes training. If you're on the other side of the room in a chair with a guitar and I'm sitting on the other side and I try to mentor you, through learning a guitar, play guitar. <laughs> uh, you're, you're not going to learn how to play guitar. Training is repetitive. Training is deliberate and training is usually very specific. Coaching is something you apply to somebody who's been trained. The training only goes so far. And a lot of times the training has multiple components and elements, all kind of trying to coordinate and work together to achieve some kind of collective positive outcome. And that part is hard to train to. And that's why coaching is required. You can teach a kid how to block and tackle and throw a football and punt a football, but teaching him to be a quote unquote football player and a teammate takes a coach. It's a different thing. It's a philosophical embrace of what being a teammate is, what being a player is. Any player in any sport, there are some players that just know where the ball is going to be, know where they have to be to help play. And sometimes you can coach somebody like that. Sometimes it just happens. That's that's something that's required in any game, including business. And, and coaching is maybe a little bit more intermittent more frequent than, than mentoring, but it's less frequent than the duration of training. You wouldn't come in and coach for two weeks. You know, So 
that's kind of how I make the distinction between training and coaching. Mentoring to me is more of a, the polishing kind of apex operator, apex performer. They're either stuck in a rut, they're already successful, they already know how to do what their primary roles and responsibilities are, but they need somebody from the outside to look at them and, and treat them kind of like an Olympic caliber athlete. You know, I don't need to teach you if you're a world-class gold medalist in the hundred meter dash. I don't have to teach you how to win. I have to teach you how to run, but maybe there's something in your arm movement that if it was just adjusted a teeny bit, you'd be just a teeny bit faster. Sometimes with mentoring, especially with high performance athletes and business individuals, if you had great confidence and you really believed in yourself and you were achieving success, and then all of a sudden the success stopped happening. Sometimes it takes an outside person that understands those dynamics to say, you just kind of lost yourself here. You lost your sense of confidence and, and value. Let me help you get back there because nothing else has changed. You're just as fast as you were physically. This is all happening between your ears. So let me help you get there. To me, that's mentoring. Sure. Meeting people where they are. We talked about that a little bit, but maybe the training is not what they need. The coaching is what they need, or maybe the training is not what they need. The mentoring is what they need, but good leaders recognize that they meet people where they are and they take them to the next step. That they take them where it is that they're both trying to get to. Yeah, I love your sports analogy too. I coach high school hockey now and I've been coaching high school hockey. Next year will be my third year. But in hockey and in USA hockey and coaching training and the ADM, American Development Model designed by the US Olympic Committee, we work on individual skills. Then we work on team skills. Then we work on hockey sense. Talking about the guitar, that individual has got to learn the individual skill, if you will, or what that instrument requires requires or what that skater is required to do. And then how does he interact with the team? And then how does that team strategize based on what's going on on the ice? Yeah. Same thing in business. Coaching game flow. Use it, you know, to, to use that as a term, whether it's in business or in hockey, uh, you can, you can strike the puck, you can skate, you understand where the X's and O's go, but do you understand the game flow? Yeah, exactly. Part of it. Do you drive it? Yeah. That's a coaching task. All right. We are going to take a quick break for capitalism. Marty and I are both good capitalists. When we come back, we're going to talk about leadership versus management, voice versus vote, and some other things that Marty addresses in his book. We will be right back. And we are back with Marty Strong talking about his book, Be Nimble. So Marty, we touch on or you touch on leadership versus management. And this is an age old discussion in the workplace. And what I've discovered is most leaders still don't really understand the distinction between the two and the importance of treating leadership very different than management. Can you discuss that a little bit? Yes. Touchy subject. It's kind of like the nature nurture debate about leadership. If it was nature, then you just get rid of the whole concept of training leaders, right? Just get rid of that one of those three categories we just talked about before the break. I think for me, I wanted to make a distinction about the quality of leadership or quality leadership and separate that from just leadership techniques and leadership methods that are applied at the lower level, at the macro level, excuse me, the micro level like leadership, lowercase l. I think mm -hmm. most leaders, good leaders can manage. I'm not sure that that's the same for all managers. I don't know if managers, all managers can lead. There are techniques in that middle gray area between leading uppercase l that you and I tend to talk to people about the bigger picture macro kind of things. How do you move the needle? How do you how do you inspire a team? How do you get one high performance individual to go to the next level? How do you talk about before? How do you get somebody who's in a slump to get out of the slump and continue to be a part of the of the greater good and the cooperative success? To me, that was an area I wanted to address because there's lots and lots of literature out there about a better way to communicate or a better way to assign a task or HR driven kind of things for leaders, you know, the best way to 
adjudicate or make a judgment, usually through processes and lots of collective hands and fingerprints all over it so that everybody feels good and everybody get, kind of gets to the end result that they want. So to me, management, it's a noble thing. I, I manage things and I'm a leader and I've been a manager who was a leader didn't have any authority to lead. That's a different thing. You see if, if you see the right thing to do big picture, but you don't have the authority to say anything or do anything about it because you're at a level that's just not asked of you yet. I think that if you take what I have in the book to heart, everybody at every leadership position can lead both in a, in a larger picture way and also, you know, uppercase L and also in, in a kind of micro interaction way, the lowercase L. Just like I think every leader from the CEO down to the lowest supervisor has a mandate and should exercise that training, coaching, mentoring. It's not just something for a certain job title or a certain level in an organizational structure. So if you ask me what the difference is between a leader and a manager, a manager is there to maintain systems and processes, which may be technology and maybe people or hybrid of both, the way they were designed to be maintained and functioning and to fix or repair if a component of that falls out or an element of that fails. A leader, a true leader is there when all those things I just mentioned don't apply. So we talked about Black Swan. You realize I've got the wrong product. I've got the wrong advertising. I've got the wrong people for what just hit me. Look what happened to the SEALs and EOD, Navy, right? 9-11 hits. We don't have enough Green Berets. This war is going to be in the middle of the mountains, in the Hindu Kush, in the desert. So what do they do? They send guys like you and my former brothers who are sailors and water guys, and they sent us up into the mountains and what we all call affectionately the sandbox for the next 15 years. We didn't have the right tools, the right people trained the right way for that particular Black Swan event. It was basically get in there and do the best you can, learn how to get better at it. And eventually that became the new normal. Now the problem is they're trying to come back to the new paradigm, which is it's not the war in, in a very particular geographic area with certain kinds of terrain. Now it's back to the cover all the bases, like when you and I first started in the Navy. You know. <laughs> Yeah, I know uh, just within Navy EOD, they're focused on getting back to the expertise in the undersea environment, which was always been our bread and butter. But my deployment in Iraq, I was assigned to an Army ODA. I was on an Army Green Beret team, but that wasn't the first time I was assigned to that type of team. And it was an incredible deployment to say the least. Okay, so leadership versus management. People, I think people want to be led and they don't want to be managed. Your discussion of management is more processes and things and people, people need to be led. It's been my experience experience in private sector, especially with small and medium-sized businesses that they they don't have a clear distinction. They don't focus on that. And if they discuss it once, it's a one and done. And then people transfer, people come and they go and and they're right back to the same problem because they just don't have that solid leadership that understands the difference there. Voice versus vote. I love the story or the example you give in, in your book about getting everybody's input, but we don't take everybody's vote because when things don't go right, who's responsible? Can you kind of share your thought there? Sure. So most people probably don't understand the distinction in the special operations community when it comes to how missions are planned and put together compared to, say, the, the standard military. The captain or the XO of a destroyer don't grab all the sailors and bring them into a big room and say, hey, how are we going to attack this other ship? That, that doesn't happen. The same thing in the 82nd Airborne, the same thing in the armored division. I mean, the decision-making and the planning is compartmented into a, a group of people at the top that are supposedly paid, trained to make those decisions and everybody else just kind of follows, right? But as you know, in elite units, doesn't matter if it's American or not, you're kind of all in it together. And I'm not going to say that every mission is a suicide mission, but every mission is a high profile, high risk, high reward. And mm -hmm. 
you may not be resourced directly like a conventional mission. So if you screw up bad enough, you're on your own and in a bad way. So there's a tradition of getting everybody's input, of getting everybody to kind of throw their idea into the stew and argue and debate about why they think we should do it this way or we should we should insert by plane or insert by boat or we should do this or do that. So I already kind of cheated when I got into business because I already had a long history of looking at all these kind of apex alpha performers with really high IQs telling me how we should do it. The problem is if I have 15 or 20 people, I can't do it everybody's way. I've got to pick a way. So I learned that I had to be open to accepting all those that information, all those inputs, all those insights. And at some point though, I was accountable to make a decision on what we were going to do. And if I was consistent, I found that even if we went and it didn't turn out the way the way I picked and somebody else was right, kind of like a lot of numbers or something, you can get a little bit of, I told you so, or a little bit of poking and everything, but they knew that your heart was in the right place. And they also realized that you'd listen to everybody first in business. There is a trend, maybe the last eight or nine years, and in business schools too, to socialize decisions, to democratize decisions. And that's fine because it makes everybody feel like they're involved and they're, and they're participating, gives them a sense of ownership. The problem with that phrase is the decision part. If everybody gets in and crowdsources, as I described with the SEAL group, preparing for a mission. If they're crowdsourcing ideas, insights, wisdom, experiences, and you come to a point where you think you've got all the information you can't get from those people, and then the leader makes a decision, that's constructive and, and there's somebody accountable for it. If you get a group together and they do the same thing, but at the end there's a vote, or they attempt to get everybody to unanimously vote in a consensus, you can't produce any excellent outcome because it's been watered down by everybody's own sense of how much risk do I want to put into this decision? Therefore, nobody's accountable. So it's great for things like research and development. It's great for things like creative activities to come up with all kinds of different ways to do things, but actual things where there's life, death, dollars and cents, you know, the life of a business on the line, somebody has to be accountable that, that accountable person should be wide open to all the input, all the voice they can possibly absorb in the time they have available to them before they have to decide. Yeah. Could you imagine telling a board of directors as the CEO, well, say, hey, CEO, hey, Marty, why did you make that decision, which ultimately cost the company, you know, X amount of dollars or litigation or whatever? And your response is, well, I put it to a vote and that's what the team voted on. And You'd the team be consisted of the receptionist, the maintenance guy, it was everybody. Yeah, you'd be gone. Yeah, you know, the guy that fixes the copier machine was there that day. We brought him in. That would be my last board meeting. <laughs> so voice, the importance of hearing everybody's voice, no doubt about that. That's uh, a critical trait, I think, for leaders. Good ideas really come from everybody. They come from your newest teammates. They come from people who have been around for a while. Not every idea is a great idea, but the good ideas and good input and risk analysis, you know, your customer facing employees or again, all these teammates, they see things that could be risky and, and we want to hear their voice for sure. But at the end of the day, that leader has to make that decision. Blank slate. Uh, do you call it blank slate leadership or blank slate? You have a great philosophy on how you approach people, how you assess people. Blank slate. What, what do you mean there? Yeah, blank slate leadership or just blank slate? A blank slate philosophy of life. So a long time ago, I decided after some negative interactions with some people that I had to decide whether I was going to let that get me down and change my view of the world or the view of the business, per se, and spend the rest of my life trying to protect myself and anticipate somebody stabbing me in the back or, or doing me wrong or whatever. The other path that I contemplated was whatever I just experienced was not typical. 
was not something that's going to happen all the time. And the majority of people that I run into are going to be honest and have integrity and tell the truth. You know, they may fail, but at least they'll have all those kind of core values. I just decided, I said, I think I want to live in a world that looks like the second one. And it might be naive, but I decided to move forward. And everybody I met, every business person I interacted with, any, any employee that I had hired, I gave them the benefit of the doubt, probably to some excess in some ways, and looked at them as a blank slate. They got to define their character, their values, their impact by their actions, by their behaviors. And I let that kind of happen. So if they did things that were detrimental to their performance, if they degraded some of those value concepts, you know, I would see it and they were kind of chipping away at their own statue. But I always started off with, you're great. You know what you're doing. You're an expert. You're honest. And let's go forward. I think I shared with you probably about 20% of the time for the last 20 years. That didn't pan out. I've only been sort of harmed once or twice. It wasn't, it wasn't devastating, but that's okay. I'd rather do that once in a great while and live optimistically and look at people at face value and then wait to see how, how it plays out with them. Yeah, that's another key trait of leadership is optimism, as you just mentioned. You know, you have to be optimistic even in the face of black swan events or in the face of adversity, you have to be optimistic. And I think the optimistic leader is the one who also has longevity. The optimistic leader is the one who's going to be in a leadership role as long as he or she wants to be. You know, glass half full, however you want to characterize it, you have to see the positive that according to a friend of mine, Sue Bingham, who wrote a book about this, 95% of the workforce bring this good moral and ethical character and and this high degree of trust and this, this willingness and this wanting to do the right thing. And so I love that blank slate concept that you have. Just a couple more things here uh, as we summarize your book. You talked about grinder. I'm going to ask you to explain that in detail, but I'm going to give you my take on it ahead. So when I was junior enlisted, senior enlisted, junior officer, et cetera, there's always those people who stay late, right? They're there late and they say, oh, he's got no life. They're there late. I always thought, especially as a team, when we're there late, night after night, after night, after night, I just always thought to myself, dang late isn't going to like get something done that we couldn't get done tomorrow morning. Now I'm not talking about war zone stuff, but I'm talking about the kind of day to day. I just always thought to myself, if we can't end the workday at a reasonable time with some degree of consistency, that's poor leadership because we have tasks. We have things to do and we have a time frame to get it done is that Parkinson's rule, I think. We need to wind up at a reasonable time every day. And if there's things that distract from getting the job done, save those distractions until we're all drinking beer under the tree or we're done for the day. Can you talk a little bit about that, about this grinder mentality? So there's, there's kind of a positive and a negative, right? As I'm listening to you just now, I was thinking about officers and also later on in business, uh, business leaders within a larger, a larger corporation that did all this kind of overwork, you know, stay late to make a point for optics reasons. In other words, it was their way of wearing a t-shirt up and down the hallway saying, I'm a grinder by making other people stay late. <laughs> True grinding to me, the way the, the way the terms used nowadays is a dedicated work ethic, a willingness to complete a critical task in the time that's required. It's not stretching things out. It's not work, make work to look busy or to look productive. It's actual productivity. There are people that, that are workaholics and you've got to watch them. You got to make sure that what they're working on is really critical, that it's worth staying late. And you have to help them, you know, maybe coach them or mentor them so they understand that what's critical and value, valuable to the to organization or time critical. Thank you. That's fantastic that you're willing to work so hard and do such a good job in such a small amount of time. 
with few resources, but it doesn't do you any good and, and, and doesn't mean you do any good if you stay extra or stay late to just do general activities because you just don't like to leave the workplace until everything's all tidied up. That's kind of counterproductive. I'd rather you didn't do that. So that way I can help control the overwork, you know, workaholic person. Trying to find the true grinder that is smart enough to know how to turn a switch on and turn a switch off, kind of like when to play, when to work, kind of clarity. Um, they're rare, you know, uh, both in leaders and in and task uh, workers. I've never believed in just, I'm not a big meetings fan. You know, I don't like meetings, but for some reason, people think that there's a lot of meetings on their schedule, that that makes them look productive or hyperactive equals more important or more important because look at all the stuff that I'm managing. Look at all the people I have that have, they're waiting for me to be their leader. Now, the, the, the flip side of that is being comfortable with letting everybody, you give them the task and you step back and you let them hit it. You let them execute. And the only time you have to step in is if you have somebody who wants to be a workaholic. But I find that once you kind of set the tone and watch your workforce and your, and your leaders, you can go in there and tweak and kind of adjust some of that with just some words and some guidance and it kind of works itself out especially if they're, they're doing it just for the optics grinding is a noble thing when it's applied to something that's critical it's probably debilitating if it's applied to everything in general it's never valuable if it's associated with optics and trying to look productive i think you just nailed it you summarize that perfectly 35 people on my team we accrue vacation time. We have normal working hours. Every now and then we'll extend working hours if the customer demand is there. But I want people to take their vacation time. I want them to take their time off. Burnout can happen too if leaders don't manage the grind, if you will, or if leaders are creating the grind, you can really burn people out and then they're looking to move on. Marty Strong, be nimble, how the Navy SEAL mindset wins on the battlefield and in business. Incredible book. Thank you for or an autographed copy. How can people get a hold of your book and how can they learn more about what Marty Strong has to offer? The book is on sale, a pre-sale yeah, on amazon.com. You can find it there under Marty Strong. It's probably the easier way to do it or be nimble. You can also go to my website. It's www.martystrongbenimble.com. There's links there to go straight to Amazon. There's a lot more information about the books and excerpts and some um, blogs that I post there. Um, if there's an interest in corporate sales, then you can go to the same site and leave a message, www.martystrongbeanable.com. And the corporate sales are usually 20 books and above. You know, one of the things I do with my management team is I'll take a book like yours and already done it with portions of your book and I have more to go, is I'll just take one of your concepts. I'll have everybody read it. I'll say, hey, read this and tomorrow... Let's discuss this. If you like it, tell me why. If you don't like it, tell me why. Let's just have a discussion about it. And that's just facilitating a leadership discussion. You know, you can do that with any content. But again, in this case, I think the content you provided is just very real and very prevalent in the workplace. Marty Strong, uh, thanks for being a great guest. Did we leave anything out? Is there anything else you wanted to mention that we didn't get to? No, I have to give you a hug next time I see you. <laughs> You look like you need a hug. I just need to give you a hug. Okay. All right. I probably always look like that. Hey, thank you so much. And everybody tune in. If you like this episode with Marty Strong, you're going to love my next episode. I'm going to go back to Women's Leadership, another author who has original content and original concepts just like Marty did. Thank you very much for listening to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. Thank you for listening to the Elevate Your Leadership podcast. To contact Bob directly or to learn more about how Bob can advance you and your organization through leadership training, team building, executive coaching, and public speaking, visit robertpizzini.com, Robert, P-I-Z-Z-I-N-I.com, and connect with him on LinkedIn.